With Fidelity Wealth Management, a dedicated advisor can work with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Plus, you'll have access to specialists in estate planning strategies. So you're not just growing and protecting your wealth, you're sharing it. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Welcome to the Jill on Money Show. It is December 24th. It's Christmas Eve. I can't even mark. It is unbelievable. If you're listening to this, that's fine. That's fine. You're you're cool. It's okay to listen to it. Maybe you're on your walk. Maybe you got things to do. It's good. We're rebroadcasting episodes um, for this weekend and next from two of my favorite, favorite interviews. This weekend, it's Tim Harford. And he's been on the show a few times. He wrote a book called The Data Detective, 10 Easy Rules to Make Sense of Statistics. Oh, by the way, guess who's blurbed my book? Tim Harford. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm also giving a little bit of a hat tip to the people who did blurb my book. He is an economist, journalist. He's a broadcaster. He, I think he first came on the program to talk about um, the 50 things that made the economy or something like that. He had, has a huge, huge book and podcast called The Undercover Economist. He writes at the Financial Times. I love him. 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy. That was the first time he came on the program. Anyway, he's wonderful. This uh, show, this interview was also pretty amazing. And um, we're so happy to re-air it. So here is part one of our interview with Tim Harford. Okay, first, Tim, why did you write this book? You are a, a wonky kind of guy. You work at the FT. It's like your day job. You're a presenter. You do all these things like... Why did you write this book? Don't you have a hobby? I, I have a hobby, by the way. I, I like to play Dungeons and Dragons. Are you surprised? But <laughs> but in between all the nerdy stuff, uh, my day job is also nerdy. Look, this is actually quite a, a big book for me because for the last nearly 15 years, I've been presenting a show on BBC Radio about numbers called More or Less. And it was originally tucked away in an obscure part of the schedules where no one would ever hear it. And it's gradually got closer and closer and closer to prime time and is on more and more often. But I, I was resistant to writing a book about numbers because I felt it's been done so often. People have done such a great job. There are so many really great books about how to think about statistics. And it's only really been the last couple of years that I felt there was something missing. Actually, two things. One was the realization that so much of what we think is nothing to do with the technical interpretation of the statistics. It's about our feelings, our preconceptions, what political tribe we're in, what we wish was true, all of that stuff. And so what's the point in writing a book that is purely about technical aspects of statistics if I can't help people be wiser about themselves? So that's what I'm trying to do. But the other thing that I felt was missing in a lot of books about statistics is they're all so negative. They're all self-defense manuals. They're all, the moment you walk out, you are going to be mugged in the street by a misleading statistic. And of course, there's a lot of misleading stuff around, but there's a lot of truth around as well. And for me, statistics are like, they're like radar. They are showing us things we we can't see in any other way. They're showing us what's coming at us. They're helping us focus our response, focus our strength. If all of the books about statistics are actually all about bad statistics, 
I think we're giving the wrong impression. So that's really where this book is coming from. Seems to me that what you've done is you've sort of married statistics and behavioral economics in a way that is really quite useful. So what is it about the world of statistics that you think is misunderstood by the vast majority of those folks who tune into your show? I think the thing that people don't understand is that it is simultaneously a lot harder than they think and a lot easier than they think to make sense of statistics. It's harder because of all the emotions that get in the way. You're absolutely right to emphasize the emotional response. It really governs how we think and what we do. Before we start thinking, we've got to notice our emotional reaction and get on top of that and at least recognize it. But then once we've done that, I think the rest is actually a little bit easier than people tend to think. They, they're on the lookout for these highly technical points about correlation versus causation and p-values and oh, percentages of percentages of percentages. And it's all so hard. And actually what I'm saying is, no, what you need to do is ask yourself some pretty simple questions like, where's this number coming from? Is it a big number or a small number? Is it going up or is it going down? What exactly are they measuring anyway? Those fairly straightforward questions get you so much further than all the technical jargon that could possibly fit into a book. Can you talk a little bit about that story you tell uh, when you were on your the subway system in London? So what were you noticing on your ride in the tube that made you curious about statistics? The strange thing was this. It was busy. The, the bus was busy. The train was busy. That's not strange. It's London's a busy, busy city. The strange thing was, I happened to know what the statistics were showing. And the statistics were showing that the typical London bus has, I forget, but about 10 people on it. That's the average occupancy, maybe even less. The average tube train, the occupancy is about 100 people, which given that you might have eight or 10 carriages, that's like 10 or 12 people per carriage. It just seemed really strange. How come it's so busy that I can stand on the platform and two or three trains have to go past before one of them has enough room that I can squeeze on? And yet I'm looking at the statistics and they're telling me that this train is 90% empty. And that's representative of a broader challenge, which is that we're always trying to combine information from our personal experience and from the data. And I think the wisdom comes when you're able to get them to fit, when you're able to make sense of both. And in this particular thing, part of what was going on, obviously, was I was traveling at rush hour. But there's a subtler statistical point. If you imagine a, a say, a, a tube line, a, a, an underground line, where all the trains are absolutely packed going west, and they're all completely empty going east, which is actually pretty realistic for you know certain parts of rush hour. Well, ask yourself, okay, what's the average occupancy of the train? Well, it's 50%, right? It's absolutely full west and they're completely empty east. So on average, 50%. Then ask yourself a different question. What is the average commuter experience? And the answer is every single commuter rides on a completely packed train because nobody is on the empty trains to witness them. And it's not like a trick of the statistics. It's not like a mistake in the statistics. It's just trying to understand what is it that this particular statistic is showing us from the point of view of the, the people managing the train system. They're absolutely correct in realizing that the trains are underutilized. They're half empty. We also have to recognize from the point of view of the commuter 
it's absolutely rammed every single time. If you think hard and have fun with this stuff, you actually can make sense of this. And it's, and it's not a complicated idea. It doesn't require you doing statistical analysis because what you're really saying and what you're laying out in the book is that, you know, you're sort of saying you got to understand what your feelings are and you have to figure out kind of your own experience. But how is it that even when presented, okay, let me give you a, a specific example. I will report every single month on the monthly jobs numbers. And invariably, I get people who say, well, you know, that's a lie. You know, there's really this many people or there's this many, there's nuance to this report because there's, you know, there's an unemployment rate, but there's a broader unemployment rate. But why is it that that report, which I sort of think Bureau of Labor Statistics, kind of great part of the government, why is that conjuring up sort of anger or disbelief among the masses when the news is good or bad, frankly? So there's a couple of things going on there. It's a great question, I think. A couple of things going on. One is it really matters. If people feel they have plenty of access to lots of good jobs, that's really important. And if people don't have access to the jobs they want or no jobs at all, that ruins lives. People become really miserable for good reason. So there's a reason why it matters what this number is. And then, well, why do people have these really strong feelings? Why do people say, oh, it's a lie, it's fake news? I think that's because so much of what we now perceive is through the lens of political partisanship. So either your guy's in office or your guy's out of office. And if your guy's in office, you constantly want to be saying the job numbers are great, things are going great my guy's a a good guy, he's making the right decisions. And if your guy's out of office, just flip all of that. The truth is, and this is one of the central arguments of of the book, there are often lots of ways to see things. There are lots of different ways, as you know very well, Jill, lots of different ways to measure unemployment. There's no single correct answer. No, there's a headline figure, there's a traditional answer, but there's no one way to measure this number because it's complicated, the world's complicated. And so there are two possible approaches. You can say, I really want to understand all the nuances, all the complexities. It's a complicated story. I want to understand the complicated story because it matters. Or you can say to yourself, I'm in this to win an argument. And so whether I say the job numbers are high or the job numbers are low is all about which side of that argument that I'm on. It's very human, but I think it's very sad because everyone who grabs a number trying to win an argument. They're not making themselves any smarter. They're not making anybody else any smarter. They're not actually going to win the argument anyway. So why not let go of that and instead just be more curious and open-minded? You go into an interesting conversation in the book about the data set. Can you explain why Let's talk about N equals all is not the same as N equals everyone. Can you explain that in a way that everyone listening who's not a geek like you or like me can get this? So there's a very old idea in statistics of sampling. So I want to know how people are going to vote in the upcoming election. So I'm going to phone a random sample of people and ask them how they're going to vote. And then that'll tell me how everyone's going to vote. And that can work even after you phoned 500, 1,000, 2,000, maybe 10,000 people, can you be sure the people who are picking up the phone are representative of the people who don't pick up the phone? 
Are they the same mm. age? Do they have the same attitudes to opinion pollsters? Some people will refuse to answer your question. They've got a different uh, routine. Some people are out, some people are at home. So there's the sample size. The bigger the sample size, the more accurate your result. But then there's also whether the sample is representative or is in some way skewed. It's a big issue. Now, along come the big data fans and they say, oh, it's fine because what we can do is we can just measure every single data point. So when Google wants to analyze the content of, say, Gmail inboxes, they don't have to take a random sample of a thousand or a million inboxes. They can just analyze all of it. When they analyze Google search terms, they can analyze all of them. Or you can do sentiment analysis on Twitter. You can do all of it. Mobility analysis from tracking people's mobile phones. You can do all of it. You don't have to sample. The big data people say, that's great. N equals all. It's not N is the size of your sample. It's not N is a hundred or N is a thousand. We sampled a hundred people. We sampled a thousand people. N equals all. We got everything. We got everybody. That's great. Here's the problem. And it's a pretty obvious problem when you start to think about it. Not everybody has a Gmail account. Mm. Not everybody has a Twitter account. Not everybody carries a smartphone around. You, if you think about it for a moment, this is obvious. But it's very easy to forget. And we forget over and over and over again that there are certain people missing from our data set. Okay, that was part one. Part two coming tomorrow of our interview with Tim Harford. Thanks again for listening. I know it's a busy weekend. Everyone's celebrating. So be celebratory. And uh, if you are celebrating with a uh, seven fishes tonight, because maybe you're going to an Italian feast or you are yourself Italian-American, go for it. It's the, my favorite, favorite night of the holiday season. So thanks again for listening. And of course, during this season and every single day, do something nice for someone else today. Grit, growth, grace. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.